Welcome to DC Signal to Noise on this Friday. I'm John Harris from Farm Journal, along with Jim Inspire from Pro Farmer, as we try to separate signal from noise in ag policy in Washington, DC. And Jim, uh, a, a lot of things uh, to go over today. And again, start with a reminder that if you want to join the conversation live, if you're just listening on the podcast, join us Friday afternoons at 1 p.m. Central, 2 Eastern on the AgriTalk Facebook page. And you can ask us questions live in real time as we record this live uh, with video and audio on the AgriTalk Facebook page every Friday at 1 p.m. Central. Uh, why don't we, you want to start with uh, Tom Vilsack's speech? He just got done talking at uh, Commodity Classic at their virtual edition of it. Um, let's let's start there. And Jim, really no new ground, but a, a couple of, of uh, small observations in that. First, I'll, I'll let you start and what you noticed in the speech today. Well, he handles questions very well, and that shows his expertise of his first eight years as Ag Secretary uh, uh, under the Obama administration. And I, I really do think it helped when he went to the dairy group because it gave him more than a little flavor from the trade policy side, and I think he's going to use that, and hopefully he will, to good steed as we, in his fervent uh, approach uh, to find uh, new and expanded markets for U.S. farm products. But he his speech today at the Classic was really a, uh, um, a, a digest, if you will, and expanded in some areas of what he's been saying uh, ever since he's he, he, uh, he was uh, officially confirmed, uh, John. He went through a lit of uh, issues and but I thought his, his his one line at the press club earlier this week was when he said uh, it's going to be a very active and proactive USDA and that's what we're going to see there they're not going to be timid we're going to go through a number of areas and you you may want to step me through some of them if, if you want. Yeah, yeah, let's let's do it. And first, a couple of observations I had on it. Um, one, you're right, it was, we, we saw an amalgamation today of, uh, you know, his comments at his confirmation hearing, his comments at the National Farmers Union earlier this week, his comments at his first press conference. Those were all kind of brought together, a little more polished, uh, yes. but really a collection of those earlier thoughts that he'd had. Um, one thing that's not going to make a lot of people watching this and listening to this podcast happy is he said we're still several weeks away from uh, news on CFAP. He said that the USDA is still reviewing that. They're keeping an eye on the uh, conversations in the Senate over the weekend, over the next round of coronavirus aid and how that may play into what's available. But he says it's still going to be several weeks before they make an announcement on what their thinking is on CFAP, not exactly what the rule, new rule is, if there is a new rule on either one of those rounds of uh, CFAP payments that are still pending that were frozen when the Biden administration came in. So now, are you talking about CFAP AA, the additional, uh, ag, the additional aid, the two uh, up to two point three both, billion, both, both and both the thirteen billion the 15, dollar yeah. package? You know, yeah. you know, you know, passed by Congress December the. 21st. I think the, the the big package in December is really a function of, of software writing because they had to rewrite a lot of stuff relative to the $20 per acre payment. But again, they're also reviewing that. As Vilsack keeps saying, they want to make sure that it reflects the comprehensiveness in the ag sector that people are, you know, you know being, you know, treated, uh, uh, you know, fairly uh, equitable is their term. 
Yeah, indeed. So uh, again, the the frustration will continue to grow was that money is held, but you know they are doing their review. They are. Uh, I, I think it hints, Jim, that they are going to be looking at some changes when you talk when you hear Secretary Vilsack talk about looking at who has been impacted and who has and has not received aid to adjust that impact so far. Yes, because in some of these uh, interviews. He, he he had the statistics down relative to you know, you know black farmers that uh, what was the average payment under CFAP versus other farmers now, I don't know whether this time they're going to you know deal with that but he he's got a lot of you know, you know statistics at as at at arm's length yeah, so it leads you to believe that he is at least uh, considering some changes to address yes. those things. Uh, the other thing I noticed in the speech today is everyone expected there to be a big focus on carbon and climate in this speech. And on the face of it, there wasn't. He came out of the gate saying, you know, first of all, we need to address uh, COVID and, you know, we're update on where they stand with, with the uh, CFAP money. But then immediately said, went into... Uh, telling about how in their numbers, 89% of farmers, uh, or uh, what was the the figure? I should have pulled it up so I have it exactly. But essentially, the, yeah, the, the bulk of, of, farm in, of farmer income comes off farm. And so that his priority is developing markets. And he went into that in, you know, talking about uh, foreign markets and foreign trade. He got into that, but then used that to get into the notion of opening up carbon markets and climate mitigation markets as a new revenue opportunity for farmers. And I thought that was, a, from a PR standpoint, that's an interesting way of, of getting at that without getting away from this notion that USDA is all about carbon and climate right now yeah. and, and saying that, no, we're really focused on, on the economics for farmers, but one of the ways we can address that is through carbon and climate. Yeah, that's selling the program, right? That's beginning right. to sell what they may be doing. You know, on his numbers, I would want to look, and because I know we've written this, the, you know, these stories before. I think you said the bulk of the income, so I'm going to have to double check that. But I would want to follow up, uh, you know, two ways: uh, by by uh, size of farmers, you know, on that. I think that the larger you go, the more you rely totally. Uh, right. if not uh, on the on on the farm income but a follow-up question would be uh, uh, to a significant degree uh, a spouse uh, either either he or she works off farm because to get medical uh, uh, assistance insurance if you will I, I think that's the one of the uh, key reasons why you have that off farm income Right. And and another thing that plays into this discussion, we've talked about this before, is uh, quite frankly, when you and I are talking agriculture on this show, for the most part, we are talking about the 20 percent that produces 80 yes. percent of the food. When Tom Vilsack is talking about that, he is talking about that whole 100 percent, which includes the 80 percent, which are much smaller farmers. And so that that changes uh, that changes the makeup from what the, the the farmer that you and I typically deal with. Absolutely, there's no doubt in my mind. And and as as I keep on saying, his first year of his eight years under Obama, he focused on that eighty twenty. Then he got some pushback on that from the production agriculture uh, groups 
farmers, etc., and even lawmakers. Uh, and he changed. And and it was a very good ag secretary for the vast majority of his time under the Obama administration. Now it looks to me like he's reverting back to that uh, uh, 80-20. Uh, and and I'm not putting a, a judgment on that. That's that's where they can expand their impact the most in the rural countryside, and he believes that. Yeah, although I was I was surprised that the speech today didn't reflect as much of that as I expected it to. Obviously, the, those numbers that he talked about at the start are impacted by taking in that whole hundred percent, including the the eighty percent that only produces 20% of the crop. But the rest of it, I mean, he talked a lot about global markets and opening up uh, the global marketplace for U.S. agriculture, which is an issue that addresses mostly that 20%. It does. And, you know, uh, you know, trade, you know, what's the line? Rising boat raises all tides or vice versa, you know. <laughs> but you need the trade because a significant margin of profitable years, when farmers are profitable, comes from when you have good trade years, good good export years. I know that's in the meat sector for sure. And we're seeing that in the uh, uh, the hog market, the beef market now, dairy. I know they, they've been a phenomenal increase in certain products on the export side. And as I said, uh, you know, Vilsack learned that, uh, you know, front and center, yeah, you know, with his, uh, you know, farmer job in the dairy industry. So, uh, yeah, he knows that in order to keep growing that farm income that you don't have to have as, as many income transfer payments, you have to expand the marketplace and that's where he's going for big time well exactly and he knows that the appetite for ad hoc payments is gone after the the, the four years of the trump administration and between mfp and and cfap um so his only other real option well, as as two one is to make sure that the marketplace provides that income and two um you know exploring these options of using ccc money or other funding to uh, provide some sort of carbon payments. Yeah, and he went into this time more than he has been. The one, I think, big difference I've seen is he expanded on the U.S.-China trade relationship and said, uh, really, uh, it's a complex one, which is true, and that uh, he didn't say the word nervousness, but things could happen uh, that would not be positive for U.S. agriculture. And he basically said he wants a seat at the table when some of these issues are discussed to, to tell about the impact on the U.S. Uh, ag sector. But that's another reason why not to put all your eggs in the China you know, basket. And he, he really explored that, I think, in answer to a question. But uh, I'll give him credit for that. Yeah, he did. And obviously got into the notion that China needs us right now. And that's why they are continuing to buy. Uh, but that may or may not be the case down the road. Um, anything else that stuck out to you in the speech today? He didn't go so much on his uh, nutrition security in this speech as no, he not has hardly in, at all. in others. No, that was interesting. That could be the audience again. It could be the uh, type of audience. He, he's a lot in that regard. He fits his speeches to the audience like, uh, now this goes way back, former USDA Secretary Earl Butts. I saw him just channel perfectly depending which group he was talking to. Uh, and in fact, I, I was a beat reporter back in many decades ago in those days in which he he uh, he had a different speech 
uh, that he was uh, talking about and realized it wasn't the same group, and he flipped almost mid-sentence, John. Uh, I think Vilsack is probably the only other ag secretary in my career who could do that. It has been a long, long time since anyone has lifted up Earl Butts as a positive <laughs> example of public speaking. Yeah, oh, he was a good public speaking. <laughs> he Let was, me tell you, it was a, you, you didn't get much copy from him, but you laughed all the way through the speech. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> and indeed. All right, well, uh, so I, I think that pretty well wraps up where we want to hit with the, the Vilsack, Vilsack speech again. No real new territory, maybe a, a little finer definition on some of the issues that he's been discussing so far. And as he noted, he's only eight days into the job. So, yeah. um, well, it, I do want to uh, stress uh, one thing yeah. he said earlier this week in, in regards to the equity issue with the you know, farmers of color. That's his, his quote. Uh he wants to have an equity commission that will review all USDA programs. Mm. That's a pretty big umbrella there. Now, uh, more than a few farmers and ranchers, especially the crop producers, emailed me and crop insurance agents asking, does that include crop insurance? And I told them my checks with the uh, USDA you know, people say yes. Uh, that doesn't mean they're going to have major changes, but they're going to look at, you know, some of those, uh, you know, subsidy payments in, in the world of uh, crop insurance. That's not saying farmers write big checks. They write huge checks for crop insurance. But there's one to watch out for in, in the months ahead, John, that that equity commission to look at the uh, the the issues of the collective issues relative to the discrimination under certain ethnic classes. Yeah, and, well, and I think we need to watch crop insurance in general, because, um, again, if you look at the uh, Climate 21 plan and some of the other uh, climate things that have been put forward, they talk a lot about crop insurance in there in using uh, that as an incentive for climate mitigation practices. Yes, and I think if done right in consort with the excellent crop insurance agents who have proven themselves almost year in and year out, uh, they could make that a winning, you know, you know, type of development that there is yeah. a win win right there. Yeah. Uh, again, if it is uh, using carrot rather than stick, it definitely could be a, a very big win uh, for climate mitigation uh, programs and processes under USDA, uh, which is something else I want to bring up in the context of this in that we keep hearing USDA in the White House say that they want input from farmers in this process. They also say that they bring forward very quickly in the process. You know, that 30-day window that they talked about to get feedback. We've got no formal process for feedback in this. I mean, I know some of the, the USDA leadership has been talking with commodity groups and others. I don't know how extensive those talks have been so far, but it, it seems surprising to me that there's been all of this talk about wanting feedback, but no way for anyone to formally give feedback in what USDA is looking at in carbon and climate mitigation. Now, they can go different approaches on that, but they haven't yet. Yes. Now, in the past, Vilsack, uh, not totally, but he's called in uh, various farm groups to sound them out because they, they, you know, they have the farmer and rancher membership. That could be one approach that we'll uh, probably see pretty quickly because, like you said, the clock is 
ticking on this. Another right. one would be to call for public comment, but boy, that takes, you know, you, you know, that takes a while. So I would imagine uh, Vilsack's going to uh, sooner rather than later announce an outreach in which he, he'll call different groups uh, in, you know, once he's uh, physically in at the USDA uh, uh, headquarters. I think, John, a, an initial timeline is April 22nd. That's Earth Day. And from all my White House sources say that they want to have a credible commentary that farmers could be at the front of the line and being a success story in implementation of climate change policy. So that uh, that's why I think that they're on a fast, uh, you know, glide path on this one. Indeed. And yeah, I, I can't see them going through the, the public comment process for this. As you mentioned, it's long to implement. And then uh, probably even worse is on the back end, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but you end up with a lot of garbage coming in in addition to the good. So, well, yeah, I mean, same letters a, coming in, same letters. Right. Um, and stuff, you know, that's completely unrelated. And it just it takes time to sift through all of that. I agree. I agree. And and with Vilsack going out to speak a lot, that's part of the advice and consent that, that he wants. He's, he's got, he, I know, has had his meetings at the, you know, uh, Commodity Classic, but I think you're going to see them bring, you know, people in. Uh, and uh-huh. I know they just announced the Ag Advisor at the White House. I forget the name, but that's, uh, you know, today. And they, they're gearing up here. So I, I will give them time on this one because you have to have the person personnel in place in order to, uh, you know, get, gear up for the uh, what questions to ask the ag sector and to, you know, formulate a strategy. And I, I think they're getting closer. Yeah, it's uh, Kellyanne, I believe it's Blazek. I hope I'm okay. getting her name correct. No, no background. I, I don't have. Yeah, from uh, Wisconsin has, has served, uh, you know, farm policy mostly around uh, Wisconsin, um was uh, in Wisconsin's Office of Rural Prosperity for Governor Tony Evers there in Wisconsin. So, uh, and again, she's going to be in the White House um, in that role as advisor to the president uh, on ag policy. So, yes, we we will see uh, uh, what her influence is there. She takes on that new role. Um, let me get back to my list as I flip back from that page. Um, let's talk about the, uh, th- this has been an issue that has been on our list for a couple of weeks now, actually brought up by our guests, first by uh, Paul Bleiberg from uh, the National Milk Producers Federation, um, and then brought up again by uh, Congressman uh, Glenn G.T. Thompson, the ranking member of the House Ag Committee last week here on the podcast. And that is the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. Um, as, as Paul Bleiberg explained, it was uh, passed in the House in the uh, twenty in the 116th Congress in 2019. Um, it did not get a hearing in the Senate, um, and there are some special rules that allow them to, uh, if they get it back, I believe it's sometime mid-March, yes. it's got a streamlined process where it doesn't have to go through the, the hearing process. And so that is what they've done. Uh, Zoe Lofgren this week reintroduced that act that would, among other things, expand the H-2A program and address some of those concerns of the uh, dairy industry and wanting to have year-round workers through the H-2A program and not just a seasonal. Um, but we also heard from G.T. Thompson last week that he has some concerns about this, he said he voted for it in 2019 because it was the only train leaving the station. 
but he he wants to see some things addressed. Uh, the, the two things he brought up were um, the the amount of workers available uh, to U.S. ag companies, and then also the wage provisions within that. He didn't want to see Take U.S. Sense. companies locked into those those wage provisions. Yeah. So, um, it, you talked about this this morning on AgriTalk, Jim. It is this is not the larger. Uh, immigration plan that has been put forward by the Biden administration that has been introduced in the House. Does this stand a better chance of making it through Congress as a standalone bill rather than being part of that larger package? I I think it stands a better chance. Uh, the reason is that I think the consen- why consensus in this town is that if y- they go for a comprehensive major package in the immigration area, uh, it's not going to fly. Uh, because of the growing, not lessening, you know, partisanship in this town. There, although not all ag groups uh, you know, favor uh, the current approach, although it was revised to some degree to answer some of uh, last year's uh, issues, at least it's a start. Uh, so uh, I think incremental legislation in the immigration reform is possible and it's probably the best approach. What's wrong with incrementalism when you know the odds are substantially low for anything major when it comes to immigration reform because of what you're seeing in the press right now, the border issues, et cetera, and the animosity between the two parties is growing. Again, it's not lessening to such a degree that the uh, uh, very liberal you know, Democratic you know, senators, who some people call progressives, uh, are are wooing again uh, a necessary vote to ban, you know, the filibuster. So that shows you their frustration, John, as well. But bottom line, back on immigration, uh, the time is at least ripe for at least the possibility of working out an ag sector only bill. Hopefully they will allow amendments because that's where you're going to see the best legislation in the ag related, ag and food sector related immigration policy. If uh, the Democrats uh, truly allow uh, amendments to be uh, voted on, that's where you get your best legislation. So, uh, yeah, and again, in, in this uh, this ag-only bill, uh, there is uh, a lot of bipartisan support for addressing the ag concerns because, one, it's jobs that we have seen time and time again U.S. workers don't want to take. We need to have that labor force for the U.S. food supply, um, and it avoids the big sticky issues around immigration, which is uh, whether you want to call it path to citizenship or um, uh Oh, what's the word? Uh, Republicans use uh, amnesty. Yeah. You know, whichever way you want to call it, it avoids that issue uh, along with some of the, uh, you know, the border security issues and all that. It stays focused to uh, the needs of the ag workforce. So it makes it a little bit easier to pass. But my question to you, Jim, is about those progressives of the far left of the Democratic Party. Do they look at this and say, hey, this doesn't address any of our concerns, so we're not going to let it move forward until it does tack on some of these other issues. This is why you need a bipartisan approach, because you may not get the uh, far left, but you'll get a number of Republicans from farm states and elsewhere. See, so this is, I think, opens up the odds that you're going to get more votes, not less. Does that make it easier to to deal with in the House than in the Senate? Uh, it, uh, nothing's easy in this town. Easier, 
uh, perhaps. Uh, but it it takes a um, uh, it takes a different approach than the Democratic leadership in the House is initially signaling in their in in their in in their power you know structure right now. Uh, because we've gone from political correctness to ideological correctness, uh, to be blunt. Uh, so that's going to have to change. Now, after they get their uh, uh, COVID aid, and we can bridge to that, uh, you know, next if you yeah, I'll sit want that next, to, yeah. and it's coming, then you, you have to see the next big approach looks to be infrastructure. But uh, 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 but so it'll see if their tone changes, because that should be more of a bipartisan, at least topic up front. So maybe that'll play into that. But behind the scenes, you mentioned dairy. Dairy uh, wants to be a more inclusive when it comes to solutions in the uh, uh, um, immigration reform area. And the language of this particular bill allows that, John. So I think you're going to have some, you know, votes for some dairy states right there. Not all. all right, well, I said we're going to move to uh, coronavirus aid next, but since you brought up infrastructure, let's hit that next because that really can play into this. Because it's it's an opportunity, um, you know, one, there is opportunity to provide funding for every congressional district in the country. And there's interest in providing something for every congressional district in the country. And it is not under the time crunch that a coronavirus aid bill is. So they've, they've got uh, some runway to build re- uh, bipartisan consensus in this. Is that the next step? Is that where we head? And is that the first step in trying to bring together the parties in some of these other issues that you just talked about? Could well be, and that could be merged eventually into climate change, you know, legislation, because portions of uh, uh, transportation goes into climate change. Uh, the uh, the uh, you know building out this infrastructure for uh, uh, you know your batteries. Remember the Biden up to five hundred and fifty thousand need for chargers that'll take multiple years. Uh, this might be part of another budget reconciliation uh, where they would again need only. You know, 51 you know votes in the Senate. So, uh, and it's going to be a monster type funding uh, program. Uh, e- I think eclipsing the 1.9 trillion dollars you're seeing in the in the COVID uh, aid uh, stimulus package. Well, I've heard numbers thrown around as high as four trillion. I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, this town, uh, both parties, just uh, with abandon, loves to spend money. What uh, likes to spend our money? Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's going to be a, uh, a big grab bag, uh, but they can build it out as a jobs program, as an incentive program, but the country really needs an infrastructure you know, vast uh, improvements. I noticed a group came out this year, I think they do it every other year, in grading the infrastructure, and we had a C-minus grade, but that's actually an improvement because the prior year, uh, 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 report was D, so some progress Mm. is being made. But, you know, infrastructure handles all, you're seeing it in the COVID uh, aid, Uh, uh, you know, broadband and and, uh, fast internet and all that. That, This is all inclusive, John. So, uh, but does agriculture need infrastructure, Bill? Absolutely. Our great waterway systems uh, not only needs, uh, uh, you know, replenishment, they need newer projects, uh, railroads, uh, bridges, highway systems, etc. So, uh, and not just the ag sector, this country needs it from the airport facilities, port, 
you know, port developments. You know, if we're going to let's link some things here. If Vilsack keeps saying, I think rightfully so, the need to expand markets, that means not only domestically, but exports. You got to look at your port situation and make sure that we have the best port situation for looking out in the future, increased trade. Are they efficient? Are they, are they, uh, will they allow the, the growing number of the larger, uh, you know, mega vessels, John? All this can tie into the infrastructure debate that cross uh, kernels into a number of other policy initiatives. Yeah, because anything that makes us the easiest trading partner makes us first on the list. Absolutely. 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 And and uh, too many countries go just in time. And, yeah. and that'll be pressure. But if you're very efficient, you know, they will come to you. Indeed. All right, let's move on to um, some comments that uh, Senator Bo- Bozeman made. Uh, he's the, uh, the ranking member of the Senate Ag Committee. He is concerned about this spending and saying that we may trigger paygo provisions that would then in turn almost decimate uh, ag support programs. He, he issued a warning flag. You know, it's like the bomb thrower at the back of the bench, okay? <laughs> I, I almost see why he did it. But, you know, uh, yesterday, Debbie Stabenow, the, the uh, Senate Ag Committee chairwoman, said, uh, don't worry about PACO. Uh, we're going to do a waiver of it. And she's, she's going to be right there. That's yeah. what most of the times they've done, not saying all the time, but most of the times both political parties eventually, John, as, and that would mean this calendar year, uh, they would come up with the waiver. But if they don't, Bozeman is correct. Under PAYGO, if you exceed uh, some f- you know, funding levels, you have to have what we call sequestration, across-the-board cuts in mandatory programs, and that gets you into Medicare, and it gets you into farm program payments, as most farmers know, ARC, PLC payments, uh, conservation you know, payments, etc. I'm not quite sure about CRP, because that's a bona fide contract that I don't think they can you know, cut across. I'd have to do research on that again. But uh, it was a uh, it was a non-issue issue is how I'd write it for pro farmer. I understand where Bozeman. <laughs> you mean was it's, it's noise, not signal. It, it's mostly noise. Yeah, I, even though I really appreciate Senator Bozeman, he raised. I think anyone should raise the red flag on this money that this town is spending and make yeah. sure what you're doing. You know, make sure what you're doing here. But yeah, I I I think that they'll do a waiver. All right, well, we're talking about this town spending money. Let's circle back to that $1.9 trillion. Uh, we, we uh, I guess, paired a few bucks off of it on the Senate side. Um, it's still looking like the Senate is going to eventually move on this over the weekend? Yeah, sometime this weekend, and then it'll go to the House because the House has to approve the changes that the Senate will. And they've been in consort with the uh, mm. House House leadership. I, I, I don't say, you know, they did, they did go from uh, $400 to uh, back down to $300 for the increased uh, uh, unemployment benefits, John, but they extended those until September, I believe. So there was a trade-off there. You know, I, me- I mentioned that I keep calling this the COVID aid stimulus package because uh, using a very, a ju- a very favorable definition of COVID aid, I only come up with about 50% of this $1.9 trillion really being COVID aid. So the other is a stimulus. Not that there's anything wrong with stimulus. Uh, we're still well beyond 
the pre-pandemic level in the number of jobs. What, what we have 10 million people still out of work, etc. But uh, let's be honest, uh, th- that's noise if you say this is a, just a COVID aid bill. It's a COVID aid stimulus package. Well, as we've talked before, I think most people agree with the the uh, direct payments. There's some quibbling over when those should phase out, and I think that they've resolved that in the Senate. Um, you know, obviously, the support for the money going to uh, medical facilities, et cetera, the money to get out the vaccine shots, all that kind of stuff. It's the the things like the uh, bridges and tunnels and and capital projects that seem to be better suited for an infrastructure plan than a COVID plan that, that raised people's ire. Yes, and they deleted uh, most of those. Oh, they did. Oh, okay. yes, they re- they deleted that bridge, that tunnel, or you know, you know, whatever. The and then the bridge from the uh, New York to Canada, etc. Uh, yeah, that's deleted. And they also modified, put stipulations on the up to three hundred and fifty billion dollars in state and local uh, uh, aid. Uh, and I think that is going to attract a number of wary centrists in the Democratic Party. So I'm up in my odds that the votes are, are there. It's just a matter of time now. Yeah, it's just when uh, uh, Senator Wyden finishes his, his stall tactics yes. in in the Senate. All right. Or Johnson. So we'll be Johnson? Or Johnson. Um, Johnson. Johnson. Um, yes. Johnson, I mean, yes. Sorry. <laughs> uh, got the wrong side of the aisle, even. Um <laughs> Well, let's move forward to uh, Catherine Tai. She made it out of the uh, Senate Finance Committee. They gave their recommendation uh, for her nomination for U.S. Trade Representative. And something we found out this week, actually, Tyne Morgan found this out this week in talking with the execs from the various commodity groups. Catherine Tai knows agriculture. I mean, and, and not just casually, to, to the point where she was talking details of ARC and PLC. Yeah from the U.S. Trade Representative, that's, that to me is a pretty positive sign. Well, yes, it, te- it shows of her work when she was uh, at the U.S. Trade Rep's office and also uh, as a, a detailed person on the House side in negotiating and writing the language yeah. in, uh, you know, portions of the U.S., uh, you know, Mexico-Canada uh, agreement. You know, it's as, it's as if a true journalist at Pro Farmer ran for you know i mean at farm journal ran farm journal it's the detailed people who (laughs) who are or who are in control now and that that can be very interesting because they know the back alleys so yes and and she had to know the the nuances of arc and plc from a trade policy perspective when she would be hit with targets of what box is this john you know the green box yellow amber box and you have have to be and she's extremely good of the byzantine language of not only trade policy but the linkages of uh, therein when you go outside uh, when you do not meet your trade policy uh, you know you know compliance that that you you, you agreed to so yeah it's uh, she, she 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 can get into the a ditch if you will yeah in a good way in a good way. In yes. a good way. Yeah, so, well, there's waters that flow through the ditch. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be looking for her, uh, hopefully, very soon. Uh, 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 yeah, hopefully she, she soon will not have a problem. Yeah, she she will not have a problem. No. But we also, could be we also think that Michael Reagan would have a problem, but he, he's still sitting there waiting for a vote. 
Yeah, I'm going to have to look into that. It might be. Well, they have been busy on the Senate floor this week. Yeah, they have been, but there's been some other ones go through. I'm just it's yeah. curious that they haven't taken up his nomination yet because he, you know, made out of committee uh, quite some time ago. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see when uh, the Senate starts to get caught up on some of these nominations. When we usually start talking about a delay or something, that's when they're going to, you know, put him on the floor for a vote. So yeah, exactly, I just, yeah. just guess from hunch. It'll, it may be next week if they're in. <laughs> <laughs> if they're in. Um, you got some updates on Farm Service Agency. Uh, there have been some concerns expressed about how FSA is going to oh. handle signups because of COVID restrictions. Uh, what have you got for us, Jim? This is interesting, John, because this is where the grassroots and the, uh, the podcast uh, helps, uh, uh, Pro Farmer helps, uh, Farm Journal helps, Ag Web, where you get some tips. And, a num- and I can't say who, but a number of FSA staffers at different levels emailed me, telephoned me saying, do you know of the guidance we, we got from, from USDA Washington that stipulates that we cannot have uh, more than 25% of our people in the office? Uh, in fact, they prefer less. And their 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 influence was, uh, this is going to be a delay, even further delay, uh, you know, farmer sign up into the various programs. And uh, I predicted on AgriTalk, and that's exactly what they did. I I looked to see what the deadlines were for any programs, and the deadline initially was today for the quality loss adjustment program, John. And lo and behold. At twelve thirty, they extended it because they had to for some yeah. for other you know several reasons. But one of them is this silly guidance. Now I've been told that this could be part of a amendment on the COVID aid stimulus package to maybe instruct USDA to be a little more flexible relative hmm. to the number of people is in the offices. So I'll have to see that once we have the final text of the bill. Uh, that's interesting. Well, at least we, we got the, the longer window, although, as you guys discussed on AgriTalk this morning, you keep expanding these windows. They start running into each other. Yes. And, and you know, I, I've always written over the years, the FSA offices, are unsung, most of them, are unsung heroes of what they have to Indeed. go through. So let's just hope they get the, uh, the, uh, the safe number of people, and let's hope farmers can eventually go to the offices rather than having to uh, deal, uh, you know, over the, over the phone in, 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 in many instances. All right, a couple last uh, issues to take up. First of all, uh, California Prop 12, a, 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 basically an animal welfare bill out there uh, uh, regulating CAFOs. Um, the was it American Meat Institute now uh, filing suits uh, against Prop 12? Yes, and what I can uh, found out about if the Supreme Court takes it up, then further delays are expected for it. And the challenge is is based, John, on state rules negatively impacting interstate commerce, and that right. that's a bugaboo there. And I was told the focus is on December thirty first uh, this year when the restrictions on sows go into effect. Uh, you, you know, that sets the space requirements for various animals, and it's a sensitive issue all the way around. So that's, uh, you know, that, that, that's the bottom line on this issue from what I can gather. 
Yeah, and the real key in this is that it doesn't just regulate production within that state. It re regulates anything of products that are sold into that state, which is where you bring in the interstate commerce issue. Absolutely. And California is good for this. Remember the egg issue just a, exactly, a few yeah. years ago? Here we go again. And poultry issues, et cetera. All right. Last thing I want to talk to you about, Jim, is last week you and I talked about uh, how much we love hearing from those who are involved in and, and lobby for and work with uh, these various trade associations and farm groups. And we have heard from them. We, we've heard from a number. Uh, we hope to hear from a number more, and you're going to start hearing them on the show. Uh, but I just want to say thank you to everybody who reached out to us in the past week and encourage anyone else uh, who, A, has tips for us, and B, I just wants to come on and talk policy with us. Reach out at SignalToNoise at FarmJournal.com and uh, let us know. Again, that's SignalToNoise, all spelled out at farmjournal.com. Absolutely. And I'm going to get uh, uh, someone lined up in the future from CURB, the you know crop insurance uh, you know, lobby oh, yeah. group, because they do a stupendous job. And I want them to articulate some of the current and longer term issues uh, in that industry, since it's such a important uh, you know, risk management view, you know, vehicle for farmers and ranchers. So I'll guarantee you someone for uh, CURB. But yeah, any other uh, industry rice, sugar, etc. I know a lot of people in the sugar industry and I know they'll come on and I like this because it's a good way, John, as you know, the value of a podcast uh, uh, is uh, that we give them extended time to air out uh, some topics. Uh, not saying commercials aren't important for AgriTalk, but for this one, the beauty of a podcast is to get base to separate the you know you know signal from the noise and if you have time we can do it yeah indeed we, yeah we've got no time limit other than the listener's interest so <laughs> yeah so we <laughs> have to we keep don't, that interest yeah yes we do have to keep that interest so hopefully we don't abuse that too badly <laughs> no, folks out no. there but yeah um and, and in fact we're going to look at also uh, having a special edition focused on these immigration issues with some of those uh, ag lobbyists as well so look for that down the road yes Yes. All right. Absolutely. All right, Jim, we're looking for signal this week. Well, the signal I'm looking at is tomorrow. I get my second dose uh, of the vaccine. Oh, and I'm signed up for my first, finally. Well, okay. Which which one? Pfizer, Moderna? Uh, I believe which it was one? Pfizer, yeah. Pfizer, yeah. I got Pfizer. And uh, I'll wait for the two, two days to come in because most people say they do feel the effects of the second one. But the reason why I'm excited is I go out, I think, 10 days after that and go to Arizona for uh, 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 an ag industry meeting in Tucson, Arizona. And I'm just really waiting. Of course, I'll be prudent with the mask and all that other stuff. But you can feel the momentum uh, changing, yes. John. You can see it reflected in the marketplace. Uh, that the, the economy's going to second I think we could have heard uh, herd immunity as soon as June now though some people in this town are saying uh, let's hope that's the case you know although I was on on a cons, uh, consultant call this morning uh, saying a so-called expert saying he thinks that eventually we're going to have to have a booster shot uh, every six months or so on this I I don't know the accuracy of that, but that's what I heard, you know, today. But I want to be positive that I really think we've turned a huge 
corner in this with the with the vaccines now flowing out there and more and more people wanting to take it not all and uh that the 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 statistics are beginning to show that uh we could get to herd immunity sooner than some of the july august september forecast of you know previously just a month or so uh, ago and that's good news because once it gets us back out there having uh, on-site meetings uh, where you get the networking involved and face-to-face and Q&As and things like that, that's all for the better. I, th- I think we've, you know, crossed the corner now. Yeah, indeed, the, the optimism is palpable right now. I think the yeah. CDC is a little bit concerned that, that that optimism doesn't get ahead of the reality on the ground. Uh, let, let's, let's hope it doesn't. But you can sense it out there. And in fact, I'm um, talking with our folks from uh, that handle the pork industry, Jennifer Scheich there. Um, the pork demand from restaurants is spiking upwards faster than they anticipated. Um, which is driving a little bit of a, a price drive as well. So that's another optimistic sign that the uh, that the economy is is getting ready to uh, to get rolling back. Um, built on this optimism uh, around finally getting out of the uh, COVID lockdown, which will be uh, well, it'll be a year next week. Absolutely, I've I've lost not the amount of pounds that I want to, but I have lost. But I can't wait to go to a series of my favorite restaurants and have <laughs> those big pork chops and those steak dinners. Sorry, but it's coming. <laughs> Indeed, it is coming. Hey, Jim, great talking with you this sure. week. We'll come back and do it again uh, right right here next Friday okay, on Jim. DC Signal to Noise. <laughs>